Good morning again. How are you? Um, well, we're, however you are, your week brought you here. Um, and so for whatever you've gone through, I'm, I'm grateful to see each and every one of you here today um, as we continue in Mark's gospel. Uh, today we're going to start uh, with, um, with, with, with an imagination experiment, um, what my three-year-old uh, is, calls just pretending. Um, no T in just and uh, no G, just pretending. Um, so imagination exercise today. Close your eyes if you want to. Um, if you have a hard time trusting people, you can keep at least one open. <clears throat> I want you to imagine yourself 2,000 years ago, out in the region of Galilee. Uh, maybe you're going for a nice walk alongside the Sea of Galilee. The, the, the smells, the sounds, the feeling, the breeze on your face. Or maybe you're hanging out uh, with friends in the town of Bethsaida, checking out the sights, the smells, the sounds of the, uh, the market, maybe, in Capernaum. Now, your friends come to you. And they have a proposition. They want you to come with them to go check out this new rabbi from Nazareth that everyone is talking about named Jesus. Now, you've heard stories about Rabbi Jesus. You've uh, heard little quotes from his teaching or stories about his authority, his power to heal. There's a, a, a imagination that you're beginning to get about who this Jesus guy is. And so these friends invite you. Next Sabbath, we're going to figure out which synagogue Jesus is teaching at, and we're going to go, and we want you to go. Maybe after back and forth, and I'd really rather stay at home or I had other plans, you, you finally, okay, we'll go. We'll check out this Jesus guy. So Sabbath morning comes, and you guys make the, the short trip to the synagogue that Jesus is at. Maybe with the plan going that you'll get brunch if he doesn't go too long. You walk in, and the building uh, is packed. I mean, it is standing room only. You are so wedged in that you're even uncomfortable, and these are some of your closest friends who have now become too close for comfort. The room is electric with people talking, excited to see what this is going to happen. And, and as you guys are talking, as you guys are catching up, uh, the room, starting from the beginning, gets quiet. And that quiet falls over the whole room, including you, and then makes its way out into the courtyard where people are gathered to see what they might overhear from Rabbi Jesus. And there, standing in front of you, is this, you know, likely short, stocky, Middle Eastern man. And he begins to start talking. This rabbi who John the Baptist had put into the Jordan, and then he just disappeared for 40 days, now is here. All the rumors, all the thoughts. He stands up and he begins to talk. Now, here's the question. What is he talking about? What's the main thing it seems like his whole talk is about? Love? The golden rule? Kindness, generosity, tithing, some strange monologue about him really hoping a bunch of crusaders don't one day use him as a mascot for murder and genocide, or I really, really hope that 2,000 years from now a bunch of preachers with creepy smiles don't use me to get nice shoes and expensive private jets. Maybe not, but still. The question remains, in your mind, what is the average day essential teaching of Jesus, the thing that he's always talking about, that core crucial element of who he is? Or to put it more simply, how would you summarize the gospel, the core message of Christianity? I want you to take a minute, and I want you to think that up, or even write it down if you want, in a sentence, maybe even in a word. What is the core crucial message to Jesus. In a word, in a sentence, what is this gospel that he's talking about? So take a minute and think.
as you think about this word, settling on something, even if you're grasping for straws, you're new here, right? You're like, I don't follow Jesus. I don't know what he was talking about, right? Uh, just, just something. Just hold it there. No take backs. Whatever that is, here's the reality. Whatever that sentence or word is, this is critical to not only how you understand Jesus, but if you identify as a Christian, this is critical and crucial to how you understand yourself and your story and what you're here on planet Earth for. And the crazy thing is, is that even if you don't identify as a Christian, that Jesus carries this kind of aura of like, for lack of a better word, around him. That what you think about when you think about Jesus reveals something crucial to the way that you see and think about the world. A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, says, whatever comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. There is a revelation, regardless of your spiritual or religious background, when you think about God or Jesus, something comes forward that reveals who you are and what you're all about. Here's the million-dollar question, though. What if the first thing that came into your mind when you think about Jesus isn't the first thing that comes into Jesus' mind when he thinks about himself? What if you and me, those of us that are call ourselves Christians, we're waking up each day, maybe with not an outright false gospel where we believe like Jesus is like, you know, from a planet where everybody is a scorpion and they're fighting in a war against the pigeons and so the scorpions have come to planet Earth for refuge. Like that's outright false gospel. Maybe you're not waking up with that because that would be weird. But maybe just something, something that's not outright false, but maybe it's a half gospel. Or maybe it's, it's the word gospel, but the emphasis is on the wrong syllable. And so you wake up every single day believing that you are a Christian and you can't wait to follow in the gospel, right? You're saying the right thing, but it's a little confusing. It's a little weird. Over the past few years, an increasing volume for me over the past couple of months, and then even more so over this week, and even more so yesterday, everything leading up to this moment, I have been convinced that there is something that has happened with an American Christianity where many of us, we may have the right implications of the gospel, the right application of the gospel. We might have the right word, but there's an emphasis that we're missing, and in doing so, we're saying gospel. We're saying the right word, but we're, it's confusing. Today we're going to look at this together. We're going to bring whatever your thoughts were, your word, your sentence, and we're going to allow and see what Jesus says. What is the first thing that comes into his mind when he thinks about himself? What is his mission? What is his declaration? What is his work? Mark 1, 14 through 15. Let's look at this together. Now, after John was arrested... Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I am, um, each Sunday, uh, I am humbled uh, that I get to do this thing. Um, to, to, to study uh, your word and then to bring what I believe you're calling us as a community to. And I pray that you would help me today by the empowering work of your spirit to say what needs to be said. God, that my tone might be the tone that you might have for us and that you might guide me um, because I feel such a conviction over this. I have so much to say and, and I would really like to eat lunch. And so my prayer is, God, that you would help me to be succinct. I pray that you would open our ears and hearts to hear something genuinely new about what it means to be followers of your son, Jesus Christ. 
Speak to us, Father, through your word. And by the power of your spirit, would you open us to hear? In your name we pray. Amen. Well, here we are in Mark verses 1, 14 through 15. Um, And so over the past few weeks, we've been looking at uh, Mark 1, 1 through 13, where we've been looking at this uh, story, this biography of the life of Jesus. We saw uh, the expectation with John the Baptist, Jesus getting into the Jordan, being baptized, and then him going out into the wilderness for 40 days. And here at verse 14, Jesus's public ministry begins. This is what he's going to be doing over the next three years. This is what Jesus, as it seems, his whole life was building up towards was this moment. And these two verses is Mark's summary statement of all of those three years in ministry and work of Jesus. It is him taking Jesus' teachings and his parables and his miracles, and he's distilling it all down into this tiny little one-sentence shot glass, 100 proof that'll wake you up and put hair on your chest. This is his summary statement of everything that Jesus is about. And so that's why what we're going to do is actually spend two weeks on just these two little verses. Today, what we're gonna be looking at is really the uh, ministry of Jesus. What was he doing? His message, what was he saying? And then next week, we're going to spend on just those two words about the response to this gospel, repent and believe. We're gonna spend a whole week on those words. But for today, the ministry and the message of Jesus, because, well, the whole question is, before we can repent and believe the gospel, we have to go around, what, what is the gospel, right? What am I repenting and believing in? And so, like many of you, you scribbled something down, or you've still got it bumping around in your head. I asked a bunch of you this week, um, texted people randomly, or like, as I just bumped into you, I just be like, what is the gospel? And they're like, you're supposed to know, not me, like... <laughs> And some of you, I would like text in like group text uh, things, and like many of you were just like, I'm not going to answer, like, because you knew that something like this was going to happen. And so I'm not going to quote from anyone uh, in here. But here's what I found in the midst of texting and asking questions is everything that I heard from everybody was true. Nobody was outrightly scorpions and pigeons or some crazy thing, right? Most of it was true. It was forgiveness of sin. Not most of it. All of it that I heard from you guys was true. It was forgiveness of sin, Jesus' death, maybe some resurrection stuff, some love of God stuff. All of it was absolutely true. And yet, when we read Mark 1, 14 through 15, there's an emphasis here on this kingdom. Something that I didn't see show up in any of those except for one. One person in collective mentioned kingdom. And even he was like, that's just because I read a book last week that made me really like, go, oh, I need to add this. So he was cheating. Um, and so, this, and, and so don't, don't hear this as like the new guy coming in and be like, collective, you guys. This isn't a collective issue. This is, I mean, I went to multiple Christian websites that had like gospel in the name, right? And you pull up their beliefs page and you look over their definition of the gospel. And I'm looking and there's no mention of king, kingdom, rule, reign, any like synonyms of this kind of a thing. And so everything that you're saying here, I 100% agree with. It's absolutely right. And yet I'm going, it seems like there's an emphasis here that's missing. Not today, Satan. Where'd the handle? Go? <laughs> Hello? Cool. Dumb. Okay. So, you know, you, we go to the, the, the gospel websites, and I'm looking up, like, YouTube, like, quippy, like, cool preachers. Of, they're like, one minute, here's the gospel. And the whole crowd goes wild. And, and it's great. There's nothing wrong with it. It's, but when you read Mark, you go, it's missing something. 
I listened to sermons. I picked up every single one of my book, you know, that's like the gospel or like the gospel explained, right? And you open it up and I'm flipping through it. And kingdom, rule, reign, Jesus is king at best is a footnote oftentimes or it's relegated to like, you know, the end times with like secret raptures and airplanes falling down. Those are books that I need to get rid of, obviously. Um, or maybe, maybe you think that, and maybe you can have them. Um, for so many of us online and, and in our community, not one person, um, or, or, or some do, but it's just, it's not the constant theme that every single thing, I ask gospel, I look at gospel websites, I look at gospel books and gospel videos, and, and there's a missing theme that's consistent here and there with some people, but it's so surprising that it's not what everybody says. Does that make sense? Of how this is just strange for me. Here I am, preacher guy, this is my job, preaching the gospel, and so I'm talking to people about what is the gospel? What are you expecting to hear? And there seems to be something missing. Some emphasis that Jesus has when he thinks gospel that we're missing. Gordon Fee, he's a New Testament scholar. Uh, you can find his lecture on YouTube. It's so good. But this quote, um, I had to pick my jaw off the floor. He says this. You cannot know anything about Jesus, anything, if you miss the kingdom of God. You are on zero on Jesus if you don't understand this term. I'm strong, sorry to say that it's strongly, sorry to say it that strongly, but this is the great failure of evangelical Christianity. We have had Jesus without the kingdom of God, and therefore we have literally done Jesus in. Now, at first glance, maybe Fee is overreacting here. But after reading today's passage, what Mark uses as the summary statement for Jesus' gospel, and you look at Matthew, and you look at Luke, it seems like maybe he feeds onto something. I mean, when you look through the gospels, and you just kind of, you know, use, um, you can just search online, the, the, the language of kingdom explicitly is used, that's not like when it's implicitly used, explicitly used 160 times in the four gospels. That's including kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, or what John uses as his little placeholder for kingdom is this language of eternal life or life that's breaking in now and forever. 160 times, my Bible, the four gospels are split at about 101 pages. I'm not sure what yours is. 160 times, 101 pages. This is one and a half mentions per page. What's the main thing Jesus is talking about? Kingdom, kingdom kingdom. He's walking around. He's telling parables. The kingdom is like, and then he's, you know, we've got mustard seeds, and we've got ladies looking for coins, and people going after shepherds. He's coming in, and he's doing miracles where blind people are seeing, lame people are walking, and he's saying, you know that the kingdom is upon you when these sorts of things start happening. It's the thing that Jesus continues to keep talking about. In Luke uh, 4, Jesus doesn't only um, get summarized as saying that he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He actually says, I must proclaim the good news, the gospel of the kingdom of God to the other cities also. For I was sent for this purpose. What's Jesus' mission statement? Preaching the kingdom. The good news of the kingdom. Right? Alzheimer's, their mission statement is a world without Alzheimer's. It's the greatest mission statement of all time because it's just like our job is to not exist anymore. But you can look up, you know, um, Ikea, I looked at Blue Bottle's mission statement. Your guys' is like just three words, and one of them's deliciousness, um, which I still don't know how I feel about that. I'm like, this is cheating. Um, when Jesus says, what's your mission statement? He says, my mission, why I'm here is that the kingdom might be at hand and that everybody knows it. Jesus taught his disciples to what was their first priority, to seek first the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. 
And then when he sends out his disciples, what does he send them to preach? They're going from town to town preaching the kingdom of God. And as you go, Matthew 10, proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. Whenever you enter into a town, Luke 10, and they receive you, eat what's set before you. Be a good, you know, a good guest. Heal the sick in that town and then say to them, guess what? The kingdom of God has come near. This continues out of the Gospels into the book of Acts where it's following the early church and it's kingdom, 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 kingdom. The story ends with Paul in Rome doing what? That the kingdom of God is advancing mightily through the city of... The whole thing is kingdom. And so what's worrying and troublesome to me is when we have websites or people who we are identifying as Christians. When I say, how would you summarize the gospel in a sentence or in a word and there's no mention of kingdom? Now, maybe it's not as far as fee that we're a zero on Jesus, but maybe we just have the emphasis on the wrong syllable. Well, we've got like a silent P somewhere where that P needs to be pronounced. I don't know why I went the letter P. Maybe K for kingdom. I don't know. So here's what we want to do today um, before I melt, um, because that's what I feel like this is bringing out of me. We're going to look at following Jesus' gospel. In our Following Jesus series, what does it mean to be followers of his gospel? And so this sermon is not going to be uh, relatively like practical. We're all going to go out and do, that's coming, don't worry. But I, do, I am convinced that we are carrying around with us the wrong emphasis, and we need to regain what Jesus is getting at when he says what his gospel is. Is that okay? Okay. So today, uh, here's where we're going. Title slide is we're following Jesus's gospel, which I would summarize as, and you'll see it within verses 14 and 15 as we go through it. The gospel as being the authentic announcement of the anticipated kingdom's arrival. How's that for alliteration? <laughs> when we hear gospel, this is what Jesus is imagining in his head. This is his mission, is an authentic announcement that this anticipated kingdom is now arriving. It's here. So let's go through this. First, authentic. Look with me back in verses 14 and 15, or just 14. Where we get the when, where, and what of Jesus' mission. So what does he say? After John was arrested, when? Jesus came into Galilee, where? Doing what? Proclaiming the gospel of God. So when Jesus, when was he here? After John the Baptist. Why mention that? Uh, one, it's because it happened that way. It's authentic. Why talking about Galilee, a real physical place? Because that's where it was. John the Baptist is even a connection here that both Jesus and John the Baptist, with outside historians that were not Christians, um, were acknowledging the ministry and work of John the Baptist and of Jesus Christ. So the first thing that the gospel is, is it's authentic. It is a legitimate historical thing that's happening. It's after John the Baptist. It's happening in the land of Galilee. And it's a real world, real life proclamation, a thing that's being said and done. It is not some kind of, well, we'll get to the advice thing in a minute. Goodness me. Um, I'm getting ahead of myself. And so what, what's going on here is first and foremost, we find that this mission of Jesus is happening in real time and real space. That, that this, is, this is the beginning of the whole thing, is we have to first and foremost deal with, I was talking to somebody at our neighborhood dinner this week, about we have to first and foremost deal with the reality that something happened or in and around 33 AD that changed history forever. 
that there's an authenticity, there's a historicity of what's going on when we talk about the gospel. But it's not just that it's historic, it's that it's also an announcement. And that's what he gets to, talking about this proclamation, this saying. I love, we won't get, well, we will. Here we go. Um, this proclaiming and saying, without getting into it too much, the grammar that Mark's writing in, in the Greek, the specific type of verbs that he's using here for proclaiming and saying, it's not that he proclaimed and said, or that one time he proclaimed and said. It's this language of a continuous proclaiming and always saying. Once again, what was Jesus' whole mission? He was always talking about the kingdom, the gospel of God. He was proclaiming consistently and constantly. He didn't have one really good sermon on kingdom. That's all he talked about. And so what does it mean that he's proclaiming and saying the gospel of God? Well, gospel, we use this language as something being true. Like if something's gospel to you, it's true. Which is, I mean, that's good. That just shows how history's been working right on our side. Um, but in the Greek, this Greek gospel word is this word euangelion, you, good, angelion, uh, news, good news. The gospel is first and foremost news. It's a proclamation and an announcement that something has happened as a result of which something will happen, which means that something is different right here and right now because something happened and something will happen. It's an announcement. It is news. It is tiding. And Jesus didn't invent the word gospel. It's a whole genre of communication that existed before him. Uh, back in 490 B.C., Greece inva is invaded by Persia. The big bad Persians come in, right? And Greece, they're able to fight them off. Yay, right? 300. You've seen it, right? <laughs> they fight them off. They win. It's incredible, right? Everybody. And what does Greece do after the defeat? They send out euangelion, gospel, good news. Persia, poof, they're out. And the name of those messengers who carried that to all the cities of Greece were called evangelists. Gospel. This is a whole thing that Jesus is thinking about. That it's an announcement. It's a royal decree. Like, are you keeping track? Even the genre of gospel is, belongs to kingdom declarations and royalty. And so we continue. It's also gospel has not only deep cultural political connections in Jesus' day, but deep religious spiritual importance in his day. For him, as a, a Jewish rabbi, what he's coming out of is understanding the good news use and language happens throughout the Old Testament. But one in particular was in Isaiah 52. You'll see this on the slide. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, gospel, in the Greek Old Testament, euangelion, who publishes peace, who brings good news. He brings gospel of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Jerusalem, your God reigns as king. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye, they see the return of the Lord. When Jesus says gospel, he's thinking about royal decree. When Jesus says gospel, he's thinking about um, a victory that's been won, a king that's been set up. As a Jewish rabbi, he's thinking that God has come to reign as king. This is kingdom. I just, I, I'm, it's so amazing to me that when we say gospel, I, it's everywhere. Do you not see this? We're missing Something incredible here. This is an anticipation that's happening. And so then what is the gospel, which Mark 1.1 calls the gospel of Jesus Christ? What was Jesus constantly saying, constantly proclaiming? What has happened now that as a result means that something will happen that changes things right now? He says his message is that the time is fulfilled. 
Now, the time is fulfilled is an interesting word. Fulfilled is, is I mean, not just saying the time is here. He uses this word of fulfilled. Fulfilled is language for prophetic expectation. I don't know how to, to examine, except for um, talking about Duplos. Um, so my Aaron, Emma, Aaron and I, Aaron and I were using, not my, me and my wife, we were doing Duplos together. Me and my toddler, we were building Duplos together. Um, and Emma was specifically wanting to build um, what was on the little like plastic box of the Duplos, the little tree and the little dog like on the flower, right? So there's a pattern here that we are building off of. Uh, this, this is silly. I'm sorry. This was the first thing that came to mind. Is there is a pattern, there's an expectation that, that, that when we finish the Duplos and Emma looks at it, we go, it, it, it has been fulfilled, right? <laughs> um, other examples of this of saying that the time is fulfilled, that this use in language is um, when your nine-month pregnant wife looks at you in the eyes and says, it's time. The time has been fulfilled. There's something that's been expected, something that's been set forward, something that's been designed and programmed and, and looked for that now in saying the time is fulfilled, we're saying all of that is now, whoosh, it's here. Jesus says the time is fulfilled. So what he's getting at here is to simply put it without us having to jump around the Bible like we're going to still be doing anyway, is what he's saying is by saying the time is fulfilled, he's saying that the scriptures themselves, the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures themselves have been fulfilled. You see, Jesus makes these statements about fulfillment, and throughout the rest of the Gospels in Mark and Matthew and Luke and John, fulfillment is always used not just to talk about time, but it's used in the same way to talk about the prophets. It's used to talk about righteousness. It's used to talk about the law of Moses. It's used to talk about the scriptures. It's used to talk about the story of the Bible, the time of Israel now bringing its fulfillment. It's here. And, and so much of this expectation, well, just to give one example, uh, revolves around kingdom. Again, Zechariah 14.9, prophet of the uh, Jewish prophet, anticipating and looking for this time when something would happen. And he is looking forward to the what? The day that the Lord will be king over all the earth. The, the, the board is slowly tipping in king. Do you see here that a consistent gospel is one that when we think gospel, it's like, oh, kingdom. That the kingdom of, of God is here. Let's keep rolling into now kingdom, and this is the place where, this is what it all builds up to. The anticipation is for a day when God will be king, kingdom of God. The, 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 everything that's happening here, it builds up to this. And so what do we mean when we say kingdom of God? And this is the part of the sermon that I have written and rewritten multiple times over the past week because I don't know how to summarize basically what is the entire story of the Bible. Kingdom is the, the, the thread, or to think of it like um, the Christmas lights. It's a string of Christmas lights that gets plugged in in Genesis and runs through the whole story of the Bible with each moment like a little bulb that's hanging off of it and being energized by what happens in Genesis. Kingdom is the thread. When you get confused about understanding the Bible as that one big story, if you find kingdom and just ask questions about that, that's the framework that goes through it. So... Um, Genesis 1, let's, let's go back to this, um, because this is when, well, here, here's the question. When you wonder about when does kingdom and ruling and reigning first show up in the Bible? I already gave it away. It's, it's the first page. <laughs> Doesn't show up in Jesus. It's the first page. Specifically, uh, in the creation account, where we see the creator God 
portrayed in this six-day, uh, which was common in the ancient Near East, processional, where the king walks into his temple, into his palace, to sit down and sit on his throne. And so in days one through three, he's forming the world, right? We've got land being separated from this. We've got the skies being set over here. We've got this goes here. Day goes here. Night goes here. He's forming creation in days one through three. And then in, in days four through six, he's filling it. Forming and filling. You're like, why does this matter? Track with me. God, as a king, walks into creation. And what was once wilderness and waste, chaos and nothingness, God begins to speak. And like a king, matter stands up at attention. And in the first three days, the world of creation is formed. And then in the next three, it is filled. And at the end of day six, God creates these these weird things called humans. And, and what's so special about these humans compared to everything else that he's formed or filled, made so far, is, uh, well, Genesis 1, 26. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, you guys, go be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth to subdue it and rule over the fish. There's more than fish of the sea. Rule the fish. Aquaman. The origin story. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the ground. In the beginning, the story of the kingdom of God is the king who comes into nothingness, makes everythingness, forms and fills. And then on the end of the con, like he comes in, he goes, human beings, you guys, you guys now do what? You fill and form. You guys, it's a, it's a family partnership. Whereas every other ancient Near East picture and portrayal of the creation, their myths and accounts, portrayed humanity as the slaves of the gods, the portrait of the Jewish scriptures of Genesis is creation as a kingdom with God making in his image that is language of sonship and daughtership, princes and princesses. who he wants to partner with in taking this world somewhere. The portrait of God and the kingdom of God in the opening stories of scripture is a God who lays down on the carpet with his daughter to play in the dollhouse and make something fun, who takes old t-shirts and makes them into a smock to create and paint something with his children. Human beings, we have this incredible ability that we can take a cow and wheat and tomatoes and basil and, and, and fire and we make pizza. Monkeys use sticks to, like, get things that we, human beings, we do something that is completely different than any, we are more than just a little bit more advanced on the evolution scale. There's something wired within us where we have this almost godlike capacity to form and fill this world. We're out of the raw stuff of this world where, I mean, you just think about this, when, I mean, over the course of Thousands of years, millions of people, and work going into pressurization and into harvesting and to, I mean, all of these processes. I mean, just think what, everything that goes into making a pencil. Everything that goes into, like, an oat milk latte. That's been my latest taste of the kingdom of God. Uh, Not latest. I've been on that. I'm lactose intolerant, so I've been on that oat train before any of you guys thought it was cool. Um, I I, I don't know how to convey this, that cinema... That technology, that families, that games, and I, whatever it might be, that, that artists, like we, this is what it means to be human. 
is that God has wired us with the, the, the ability to form this world, to fill it with creativity and beauty and children and animals. and hut. Like, this is what's going on. This is what God wants is a world where he's down on the floor playing with his kids and taking this world somewhere, expanding the garden. This is how the story opens. When we say, what is the kingdom of God? Genesis 1 says it's a portrait of human flourishing, of human creativity, of creation. And they're all vegan, but that's a whole other conversation of something that's happening profound here. Unlike every other portrait of what it means to be human, of either being the slaves to the gods, or this is all just random happenstance. The biggest problem to me with, with a secular atheism that comes into a, a, a deep level of um, what, what, what comes out of that is the hardest time that I have is, is explaining beauty. Why we care. And, and I'm, or, or, or love, or the, the, it's all the things about why humans, like I can get like why my body looks the way that it does within it, that's fine. What I can't get around is humanity's ability to form and fill this world and answers that, that secular atheism just cannot give an answer for. There's something wired within us for beauty and creativity. I mean, we're in LA, you guys, for art, for cinema, for coffee, Whatever it is that you're in, there is something about what it means to be a human forming and filling a really good world. And so this is the, the first picture of the portrait of God. There's so much here that I can just keep going through. I have more notes on iced oat milk lattes, so we're just going to skip that. <laughs> Unless you guys want to talk about that. Um, as human beings, we've been made to form the raw stuff of this world into food, into art, into cinema, into technology, photography. My wife, she works as a bookkeeper, taking the raw stuff of what work is and figuring out how do we plan to continue to work well. That in the beginning, there's the story of a kingdom with a God who identifies to his children as father with princes and princesses invited to take this garden somewhere further. And so as we trace the kingdom of God theme, not even a few pages go by before we find this tragic twist that everybody's familiar with at some level. It's the story of a prodigal son and daughter who we didn't want the father, we just wanted his stuff. We were misled to usurp God's power by this tempting offer to be our own gods. Why be princes and princesses when you can be the cosmic king? To choose good and bad for yourself and not receive that from the creator on your own terms, as you see fit, as what would work best for you and your clan, even if it's at the expense of them and their clan and the rest of the world. We choose good and bad, good and evil for ourselves. And so this garden becomes broken. The kingdom is corrupted as this rival kingdom emerges. It slithers through the ears and into the hearts of humanity. And the vice regents, the princes and princesses who were meant to carry out God's blueprint over creation, toss out that blueprint at the invitation of this mysterious and enigmatic serpent. And now what we find is that even though we continue to form and fill this world, it has been plagued with going back the wilderness and waste, the formless and void, the entropy and chaos come right in the midst of forming and failing, specifically because we do it at the expense of one another so often. Slavery and racism, generational privilege, sexism, the glass ceiling, each and every one of these springs from human beings taking power for themselves and believing that in order for me to flourish, it must come at the expense of others. 
it happens on a large scale, but even within our own homes, anger, impatience, divorce, pain, abuse, neglect, breakups. These are the kingdom of men warring against one another. Those of you that have recently gotten married and you're like, this is a lot harder than I thought. Those of you have been married for a while and this is harder than I definitely thought. What is happening here is you have two rival kingdoms, two people that want to pick good and evil for themselves. And when those kingdoms merge, that's called war. And then what happens is then in the midst of that war, you have all these other little kingdoms that come out. (laughs) And they're demanding what they see as good, right, true, and beautiful, and what's mine. And this has been our house for the past week. Um, That's actually true. Um, You see, the whole thing is that, that... the whole point of, of what the story is, is going back to Genesis, is that we were not created to be slaves, but that the kingdom of God was one where we, like children learning from their father, we learned how to bear this image well. We learned how to rule in a way that we wouldn't do it at the expense of one another, trusting our good father and what he calls good, right, true, and beautiful. And all of humanity, we're falling apart, and Australia is burning because we have over and over and over again chosen what's convenient for me, for my kingdom, and my throne, and what I want, even if it comes through X, Y, and Z. And so when Jesus shows up and starts saying the kingdom of God is at hand, he's saying there's something new that's happening, but it's the thing that you always knew that you were wired for. Something that you've been searching for, something that you've been desiring. Jesus points to the fact that it's been fulfilled because the pot conflict of the story is that for God so loved the world that he wouldn't let it stay the way that it's been going. For God so loved the world that he called out a family, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Leah, Judah and Tamar, Boaz and Ruth, David and Bathsheba. And in the midst of all their chaos and entropy and their little kingdoms happening, God was committed that through this family, he was going to take us back to the original kingdom, back to the garden. The whole story of the Bible is all about a kingdom that has been established, one that's been lost, and that one that Jesus says, it's arrived It's at hand. It's drawing near. Like the sun dawning, its light is seen, its warmth is felt, but the sun itself is still cresting over the horizon. Whereas you watch Jesus' ministry, the summary statement of his whole ministry is he's walking around, and the kingdom is at hand. And what it looks like is that the sick are healed, that the hungry are fed, that the widow, the immigrant, and the orphan are cared for, that evil powers are overthrown and cast out, that the marginalized are invited to the table, that service replaces status, where empires are loved and where enemies are loved for and prayed for, where we are called to enable to live without anxiety, to speak truth to power, to walk in a way of nonviolence, where the greatest of us is the greatest servant of all. It is an upside-down kingdom because we become so used to fighting for one another, for our own kingdom. And to go back to Martin Luther King Jr., his his dream that one day justice would roll down like waters, righteousness like an ever-flowing stream when all things are set right. His dream was so, because he was was a pastor, he was a preacher, was wrapped up in seeing the kingdom of God actually come and show itself in justice and in rightness. He was committed to fighting for that. Isaiah's hope. In 52 was that one day there would be one who would bring good news. And Zechariah's hope is that one day God would come and be king. 
the, the turning point of everything that's happening in Jesus' ministry is that those people are one and the same. Jesus is both the herald and proclaimer of the kingdom and the kingdom itself. Where we now see that the God of Israel, that cosmic creating father king from Genesis 1, will not allow chaos and evil to win, but he is driven by a deep love for this world, for his wayward and prodigal children. And so like on page 1, Jesus says the time is fulfilled, that God is now reforming and reclaiming and refilling his creation through his appointed image. His royal representative, who is going to be what Adam and Eve and you and me have failed to do. To live in the kingdom. To enact it and proclaim it. Dan McCartney, in his book um, on the, the coming of this kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming, that this is the restoration of the Garden of Eden. He just simply says, the arrival of the kingdom of God is the reinstatement of the originally intended divine order for the earth with man properly situated as God's vice regent. This kingdom language is we're going back to the garden, and Jesus is saying that this isn't just something that you go to when you die. It's It's at hand. It's arriving. Its warmth can be experienced now. Its light can come into your life here and now. And so this is where I... um, Here's what I'm just, we're going to do this. Um, This is the kingdom portrait, and in a minute we're going to get to the scandal of how this kingdom gets inaugurated. But first, what I just want to acknowledge and point out is how when we carry around these little half gospels like we talked about, these these goose spells, these uh, right words but wrong pronunciations, when we miss out on kingdom, what it ends up coming down to is that most of our gospel summary statements come down to something like, um, I'm a sinner. Jesus died, I can go to heaven when I die. Something to that extent. Now hear me again. We're about to say, that's absolutely part of the gospel. But when we miss out on kingdom, we start the story in Genesis 3 with the fall. With everything going into chaos. And we start the story with your first and foremost identity statement being one as sinner. You're a bad person. No conversation starts well that way. Kingdom evangelism, then, is one where we start saying there's an announcement of something that's happened, that this is not a a spiritual advice of how to go to heaven when you die, where we have some kind of um, what Dallas Willard called barcode Christianity, where if you sign the dot on this little thing, you believe Jesus died, boop, is that what happens then when you die, you go to heaven, that, you know, St. Peter's there with like a, a scanner from the supermarket, and he scans you, boop, oh, you got it, you're in, right, or boop, no, you're not, sorry, bud. This barcode Christianity, or what what Dallas Willard also calls um, vampire Christians, which um, is a great hardcore um, band name. Um, (laughs) And what he gets at is that vampire Christians, when we don't have the kingdom in our landscape of what we're thinking about, and when we primarily focus on Jesus died so that I can go to heaven when I die, is we become these vampire Christians where at the end of the day, we're just interested in Jesus' blood. Like, we just want to drink some of his blood. Give us a little bit of life. We're not actually interested in knowing him. We're not interested in following him. We're not interested in being with him. We're not interested in his kingdom. We're just like, can I just get some of the blood, you know? And that'll be enough. I just want, what's the bare minimum to get into heaven? Is what we reduce the gospel to. When for Jesus, the gospel is not, 
Here's the little things you got to do to go to heaven when you die. He's saying this is what it looks like when heaven breaks in down here. And that's beginning now and will happen in fullness one day. Even more than that, that Jesus died for me so I can go to heaven, it, it's, I, man, there's so much here that I can just bring it on. There's, it, it becomes a product that, of individualism, which is great for revivals, right? You are a sinner, so you need to believe, as opposed to God has done something. And so we walk in individualism of like, well, the whole thing revolves around me. As opposed to, oh, God's doing something. He's inviting me to be a part of it, absolutely. But it doesn't revolve around me. I mean, these religious advertisements of self-fulfillment, the thing is, is that this doesn't work in a city like L.A. Because we say, oh, in Jesus, you can have peace. There's a CBD oil that can give you that. Like, oh, you feel, you feel shame about what you've done? Nobody feels shame anymore. Like, because we've, we've, we've all just committed to our own little kingdoms. And so the turning point is, I... Maybe your kingdom isn't working well. And maybe, though, in the midst of it, the good things that are being built in your kingdom is a picture and a portrait that's meant to drive you towards what's actually going on here. Pointing you back to what it means to be a prince or princess. And though you've run in a rogue, royal way, there is something that that can happen here. Whenever we reduce the gospel, we put the emphasis on the wrong syllable, what ends up happening is over generation and generation, we end up mispronouncing it. And then we're surprised when our evangelism, when telling people about Jesus, isn't working. And maybe it's because of the fact that what we're trying to do is we're trying to give 16th century answers for, you know, 15th century questions about feeling guilt. That we, we need to reclaim what Jesus is doing here is answering first century questions with 21st century answers. Kingdom is here. What does it mean that kingdom is here? Here. And so, like I said, the the scandal of this, and the the whole point is not that that Jesus' death doesn't mean anything, because that is the great scandal of the kingdom. Is that every other kingdom in the world, how does that get put into place? It's through violence. It's through taking it's through we're going to do you know backdoor deals we're going to figure out how we're going to slowly work our way up and and at the end of the sword is how it normally happens the insanity is that the scandal is that this kingdom of god is one that actually gets inaugurated not through well it does get inaugurated through the sword but the king is not the one that's wielding it he's the one that's dying underneath it jesus's way of defeating the evil in all of our little kingdoms is by being defeated by it himself And so did Jesus die for our sins? Absolutely. So that you might be a part of this kingdom. So that heaven may begin to be experienced right here and right now and brought to your neighborhoods right here and right now. And so inherently, this is what what we're getting at with gospel. And the hard thing is, is I feel like so much of today is I've tried to summarize most of what he's going to do in the gospel of Mark for the next year and a half in one sermon. And so if this felt like fire hydrant... Um, we've got a year and a half still <laughs> where we'll go in part. But I, I just, I'm overwhelmed at the reality that when I wake up in the morning and I think what it means for me to be a Christian is I go to heaven when I die, then I'm not thinking about how I treat my barista. I'm not thinking about what my career means. I'm not thinking about, and I'm just kind of like, I'm just kind of along for the ride, cruise control until heaven. Maybe a little Jesus blood just to remind me that I'm saved every now and then when I need it. The difference of the kingdom is that I start waking up and I acknowledge the part that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's right here and right now. 
And so the way that I treat the people around me, the way that I go to work, when I go to work in my career, I see this as what does it look like for that Genesis 1, Genesis 2, kingdom of heaven to start looking like right now and right here. This brings a whole new life to our story. And so kingdom is the thing that we keep coming back to. And, and that's what we're going to, especially next week, because as we'll see, this completely moves us in a new direction for what it means to repent and believe. So I'm overwhelmed. I'm sure you are too. But this is, we, we've got to do something with, with the, this is the gospel that Jesus gives us. And these little boxed versions that we've been given for those of us raised in the church, that there's a nice, neat, marketable, hey, you're a sinner, Take two of these and call me an eternity. Isn't working. As opposed to the fact that there's a kingdom that we're being invited into and that Jesus died in order to bring us in our death into it.